0: Canada and the rest of the world and welcome to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore and joining me here today is filmmaker Edward Platero. How you doing, Edward? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for, for agreeing to come on and do this. Oh, absolutely. Look forward to this. Now, before we get started, I do want to let the world know that today's episode is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information.
1: I always like to ask, is there anything cool you've been watching recently on Netflix? Uh, I did. I watched a movie the other night that I kind of want to touch upon when we kind of dive into this. Um, But I I recently watched a movie called Love uh, from 2011. Uh, It's about a... Uh, an astronaut who was sent up to the International Space Station after it's been avant- abandoned. And he's up there by himself in isolation. And it's a, it's a, it's a, the movie kind of falls apart, but it's a very ambitious movie. And um, there's a lot of parallels that, that I want to kind of touch on with what we're going to talk about today. Great.
0: Well, the movie that we are here to talk about this week is 2014's mega astronomical super movie by Christopher Nolan. We're here to talk about Interstellar. The ways that Netflix describes this movie, first of all, when you hover over the title, it says, Earth is dying. He can save humanity by piloting a risky mission to another galaxy, but the cost will be his family. Which I don't appreciate, because that's kind of spoilery. Yeah, for- that is very spoilery. Um, Yeah, you don't really get a hint that it's going to go south until about halfway through the movie. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Netflix. (laughs) And when you click on the movie, the description changes to, while humanity teeters on the brink of extinction, a group of astronauts travels through a wormhole in search of another inhabitable planet. That sounds like a movie I would watch. The genres it belongs to, according to Netflix, are dramas, thrillers, sci-fi thrillers, sci-fi and fantasy, and sci-fi dramas. No problems there. And the moods it assigns to the movie are mind-bending and cerebral, which I always get nervous when people start saying things like mind-bending and cerebral because it's just kind of like it's okay if you don't get it Yeah. or making themselves feel better for for feeling like they were <laughs> managed to keep on top of what was going on. So we ended up meeting by way of Jason Gray, who uh, listeners will remember from our discussion of upstream color. Uh, he introduced us and he said that it would be amazing to talk to you about Interstellar because he said you've seen it a hundred times. Well, now, I don't I know, know if that's an exaggeration well. or...
1: I I don't know if I, maybe a hundred times, not a hundred times where I've sat down in front of it and watched it, but uh, I I tend to sometimes kind of dive into movies with almost an obsessive, um, viewing pattern where the movie becomes like a source of comfort for me and I will just put it on if I'm doing something in the background or if I'm eating something and I want to pass, you know, some time while I'm eating or something, I'll throw a movie like this on. I've gone through my life. I've gone through this with certain movies. And I really got stuck in a loop with Interstellar, and uh, it, I I love the movie. I think it's an absolute masterpiece, and there's um, it's one of those movies. Again, to me, it's like a uh, it's just like a like a favorite song that uh, like I'd love to experience over and over again. So it's it's something that you like, kind of getting lost inside of, and it's- yeah, I, I think it's it's. I mean, there's there's flaws in the movie, but I think it's like. I really enjoy it when I, when I see a movie like interstellar, I believe is two forty eight. it's two hours and 48 minutes long. It's, mm-hmm. it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a three hour movie. Um, I find Nolan has a good way of doing that with pacing. Um, uh, Scorsese is another one that, uh, um, like I've watched the aviator. I've went kind of down this rabbit hole with a movie called the aviator and that's a three hour movie as well. And it doesn't seem that long to me. So was this one that you managed to catch in theaters when it first came yep. out? Yeah, I, I actually saw it three times in the theater. Okay, so twice at the the IMAX here in London, which is not real IMAX, but uh, and then I saw it once on normal, uh, whatever, not an IMAX.
0: Uh, yeah, I caught this one in theaters too, and it it absolutely blew my mind when I yes. saw it the first time. It was the the last time and first time I remember like openly sobbing in a movie theater. <laughs> the,
1: I see. I had the I had the pleasure of going into it relatively cold too. That. Like the one thing I liked about the trailers, the fourth trailer was the one that really kind of pulled the curtain back on the movie and, and told mm-hmm. us the story. But I didn't see that one. I only saw the first two, where the first one was just like a rocket going into, into space, right over over narration. The second one kind of kind of got into it a little more, but those are the only one I avoided everything else because i i really wanted to go into this movie not knowing that much about it Yeah, it was the second one the really kind of dusty brown one that gave you a, a feeling of what it yeah, was it was think it was but, more time on earth and then it they they kind of explained that you know they're going out for mankind but yeah didn't really show much of the space stuff where the no, fourth yeah. one had had like that that really good track on it there was a really good song that they played on the back and it really kind of you know was the cliff notes of the movie
0: yeah i I think that it was the second one that that got got a lot of play but i remember seeing that one a lot and previously i mean for nolan's last movie i'd really actively avoided knowing anything about it and that was for Mm -hmm. dark knight rises because i just i wanted to go into that so ignorant and so cold and that movie was ultimately among the (laughs) biggest disappointments of my (laughs) (laughs)
1: cinematic life but i like i i kind of i caught wind i read something that said something about matt damon being in it and i was like whoa wait a sec i haven't seen him on any posters or (laughs) anything in the mm-hmm. advertisement. And I think it was the same day I read that, I I guess I said to my girlfriend, we need to go see the movie tonight. Like, I need to see this because I don't want to be spoiled. Right. So,
0: so many things to love about this movie. So many things to talk about. Uh, The first thing that really stood out to me quite early on, and this is also partially because um, recently I talked to a dynamicist or an astronomer about Armageddon. Oh, yeah. So. (laughs) um, That was your dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. I listened to that episode. So uh, I've come to really appreciate when movies take the time to be responsible respectful of science Mm -hmm. i myself am am not well versed in physics so i don't know how accurate things got in this movie but at least there was it was a love letter to science Mm -hmm. especially in the way that cooper's uh interacting with murph should we call her? yeah Yeah, i mean you have to call her murph right yeah i mean that's that's after all right all right all right that's probably (laughs) the most iconic mcconaughey line there is but very early on we see him instilling in murph that it's so silly to say that. Uh, we've seen him trying to teach her that it- things have a reason and that uh, you know it's okay to be mystified by something but you need to go deeper you can't just allow the mysticism to be what happens um, you have to do the work you have to, to track you have to do the science and really understand and appreciate what's going on and the movie has a, a strange and somewhat tenuous relationship with that because it, it kind of ebbs and flows with what it considers to be science and what it considers to be not I'm not going to go so far as to say magic but it, it gets strict and then lenient with what it considers to be acceptable to to allow within a rational mind especially yep. later when we get to talking about whether or not love can tr- yeah. transcend <laughs> dimensions and things yeah. like that
1: well i know that they like th- this keeping true to the science was very important to them and and the movie was really conceptualized by kip thorne who's an astrophysicist and they worked with uh, they, even before christopher nolan came on board to the movie um, like Kip Thorne had developed this idea and it was sat with Paramount and uh, Christopher Nolan his brother Jonathan wrote the script and it was supposed to be a Spielberg movie so uh, like Jonathan Nolan would, you know speak to his brother about it they, they always bounce ideas off what projects they were working on and he kept on talking about it in his to his brother and his brother was like oh I, I really wish I could be part of this sounds like fan- a fantastic uh, film and when Spielberg kind of left the project, Nolan went into Paramount and said, I, I need to be involved in this. I, I need to, I want to direct this movie. I, I would love to to see what I can do with this. And then he sat and worked with Kip Thorne and talked about all the science about through this and wanted to make sure that the science was as accurate as they could have got without, you know, was still, still keeping the the movie, ma- movie magic in there. but, trying to keep it very, very grounded in real science. So uh like when we see the black hole in in the movie, those are all based on like they did all the physics in the equations and gave that to the digital team and they built the simulation off real science like like theories, uh black hole theories. And that was the what you see on screen is almost the most accurate representation of a black hole that's ever been shown in cinema. Mm-hmm. I
0: appreciated that the movie also kind of lets itself off the hook a little bit at the end when you're inside the black hole, when they're in the, the, yeah. the Tesseract, when, uh, when Tars is explaining that, oh, well, you know, like, this isn't actually what you're seeing. Yeah. The, the bulk beings have very kindly yeah. kind of dumbed this down to a three-dimensional plane for yeah. you, yeah. so be grateful. So it's like, all right, <laughs> fine. Like, movie, do your magic. <laughs> yeah. Show me whatever beautiful pictures you can come up with to represent what we're seeing. And then just, you know... Even, I I thought it was cute that they let themselves kind of off the hook of, well, I mean, maybe like on film, you can't represent the fourth and fifth dimension. Right. So I appreciate that it it was at least kind of respectful enough to be like, yeah, okay. We had to take some shortcuts (laughs) because, well, we had to take some shortcuts. Yeah,
1: Well, and the, and the, and they, they kind of explain it, but they don't like, they, they, I feel they kind of, I don't like TARS kind of says, you know, the bulk beings um, created the, the Tesseract so that, we can manipulate time and space through a tangible thing um but they didn't like they don't really explain who are the you know who are the bulk beings or i mean they kind of touch on it but um like i don't still i feel it's like an open-ended thing like when I, I know when i came home from the movie like i did a lot of research on the timeline of the movie and how it was all put together and and found out okay well the actual bulk beings are the human race yeah ev- evolved to mm-hmm. to um yeah that's the the revelation it. that yep. that coop has when he's yep.
0: kind of once he's figured out how to manipulate gravity across dimensions yep. i just realized after throwing out that sentence how nonsense this is probably going to sound to anybody who hasn't watched the movie <laughs> that's but oh yeah well and, and, it really uh, does sound insane
1: but yeah and I, I think if if like if if this was a movie you like fell asleep through and woke up when he's in the tesseract you'd be like Okay, we were just riding around a spaceship for two hours, and now he's in this crazy bookshelf room. What, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> um,
0: the other thing that the movie talks about quite a bit with science is the kind of the politics of science and mm. how science can really be a tool of governments and of uh, of politicians and of kind of uh, just larger ideas. Um, for instance, we get the scene quite early on where Coop is going to the school to mm-hmm. talk about uh, his son's future. And they say, you know, we don't need more engineers. We need more farmers. Yep. And then they get into that debate about whether or not the moon landings happened. And it's never actually clear if we're supposed to accept in this world that the moon landings were actually faked and this is something that's come to be true Mm. but I think it's more heavily implied because we're supposed to be on Team Coop that generally it's just been decided that it'll be better for the human race if we the phrase they use in the movie is look down. So we need yep. to stop looking up. We need to look down. So let's just gloss over the achievements of what we've done scientifically before for the sake of focusing on the here and now and what we're going to do to continue to propagate the the human race here without getting lost to, to fancy looking otherwhere. And it happens again later with NASA where mm-hmm. NASA still has this enormous budget to build this unfathomably large spacecraft, yeah. um, but it has to be hidden it has to be tucked away yeah. and it, that really spoke to how how difficult it is to ever really know what the truth of a thing is because Mm -hmm. everything does get passed down through all these layers. Unless you're the one like Coop is trying to teach Murph, unless you're the one doing the science and looking into it yourself, you're entirely at the mercy of what people with power or people who at least pretend to have power are passing on to you. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of terrifying, but also empowering that, you know, all it takes is just to look and to ask questions to be able to find whatever objective truth there might be.
1: Well, and that's why like he, he, you know, you see him, um, because he's you know he's an explorer too, right? Like you see him argue with the her teachers and saying like he doesn't want his daughter to, her path to just be like a, a farmer again. He mm-hmm. knows that there's there's more more to her, right? And it it's a shame that in that future in that movie that um like they're repressing brilliant minds just to really sustain humanity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and not really looking for a solution out. And you understand why it's happening. Like it's a really
0: yeah. bleak
1: existence yeah. that they're
0: in where the very air they breathe is turning against them and turning Mm -hmm. to nitrogen and what is the the really depressing line that the last generation to starve will be the first generation to suffocate or something it's just like like, oh man like there is no hope for us whatsoever but that also speaks to another big strength of the movie and that's in its conversations about what humanity is Mm -hmm. as a whole because we see so many different facets of humanity and all of them are claiming to represent the whole of humanity yeah. and they're all right and mm-hmm. also all wrong at the same
1: time. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because they, they mentioned that, that like with them on the ship, there's no, there's nothing to be afraid of there. They know that they, they will not reach any evil, you know, in space in their travel. But it's interesting because when they do meet the, the evil and, and, and this is a big spoiler. Um, if anyone's hasn't seen the movie, is that uh the evil they meet is dr man right so it's it's the evil of man <laughs> that like it's, it's so it's, on, it's on a, nose oh i know like uh, it's crazy that's like uh, but like but that's like that's the evil that they face right they and they talk about that on the ship they said like uh, she says like is a is a lion evil when it it rips a gazelle to shreds no because that's nature right? yeah and i mean even though nature is being evil to them on earth they are not going to experience that that evil um, where they go. Well, yeah, maybe through hostility of the planet, but... Yeah. Well, I there's, think... I there's think, no war where they're going. There's mm-hmm. no weapons. There's no...
0: I, I think in that they're more... The point that they're making in that conversation is more that evil is really a human concept. Yes. And that... Well, and I guess that is true. You know, they're going off to places that are untouched by mm-hmm. humanity. But that evil itself doesn't really exist mm-hmm. because everything is based on self-preservation yes. and and the desire to continue the human race so you know, at no point is anybody acting without the best interests mm-hmm. it's just in some cases the choice gets made to do it through dishonesty or or other you know, less desirable means. I started to mention that we see kind of this wide swath of humanity and it's all true. And it's all not at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like Coop is so convinced that humanity is blank. He says, you know, like we're not, we're not caretakers. We're explorers. Mm-hmm. I don't, my Matthew McConaughey is partially George Bush, but um, you know he's always looking up. He's all yes. about wonder and exploration. Compare that to Jonathan Lettsko, who his father-in-law, who's much more practical. He's very much in the here and now, and in the you know supporting the teachers. That no, like we don't need to be filling this kid's head with nonsense. We need to teach him how to be an effective farmer, mm-hmm. so that people don't die. Like it's more about practicality, yeah. and even though. Because we're following Coop as our protagonist, we're kind of swayed more towards the, yeah, science exploration. Yeah, absolutely. It's also like, well, the, you know, the counter side to that is, you know, if you hadn't been lucky and gotten where, you know, if, if, if things hadn't gone right mm-hmm. and we'd all followed your lead, then everybody would be dead. and The human race would no longer exist. Yeah. So so it's both. And then Dr. Man, you can't hear me roll my eyes there, but you you get that with him as well he, until we meet Doctor Man. All that we hear about him is that he is the best of us. Yes, you know, he's the the pinnacle of bravery, and he's the one who managed to lead eleven other people. Um, is it eleven other people or twelve? Are there twelve total? Yeah, I think it was twelve. Twelve total.
1: that, okay. that went through the, the Lazarus missions.
0: Okay, because if it had been him and then twelve others, that would have been a little bit more, yeah. a little bit more Christ-like. <laughs> but he's supposed to be the best of us. He's supposed to be this incredible person who's inspired others to make this huge valiant sacrifice. But then once we meet this pinnacle of humanity we see him to be generally unremarkable except for his you know he's obviously very capable and intelligent but he's also very concerned with self-preservation he's willing to be dishonest for the sake of seeing other people he's lonely he's flawed he's arrogant he's selfish and even his his greatness mm-hmm. is kind of a byproduct of a disillusionment that he has about himself he dr man says it never occurred to me that mine wouldn't be the planet that was going to yeah, save everybody Absolutely. so it's when he's kind of faced with the fact that oh oh no maybe i'm not the magical unicorn that i thought i was it his world falls apart and he ends up potentially ruining humanity's yeah. chance for existence well he,
1: and he does he does mention that about how like he you know he tried to do his duty but he lost out to the basic human need of Mm self-preservation so he said i knew that if i just push that button then eventually somebody would come save me Mm -hmm. like he he just could not go through with his own death so Mm -hmm. when in the time where he needed to be brave that human instinct to stay alive just took over for him Mm -hmm. and it's a shame because that you know like he by doing that he's put himself in front of the entire human race and and, and it causes him to be desperate and, you know, take this ship off the planet and maroon them there because he knows that he knows that it won't sustain life there. So mm-hmm. he's got to go through with plan, plan B. It's either Cooper goes home to die with his children or man goes and saves the the human race. So... I could see in his mind he's totally 100% justified in what he's doing. Yeah.
0: It's, it goes back to Because it's for the greater good.
1: Exactly. It's
0: always for the greater good. Although, yeah. in his case, it's a bit more, it's self-preservation. Yes. He's had enough time to kind of cook up a story for why it's mm-hmm. why he has this justification for what he's doing. Yep. Um, but we see Cooper do the same thing as well. Yeah. Where, you know, it's kind of the opposite because where Dr. Mann is... No, not even. It, but, it is the same thing because Dr. Mann is... Pre- tending or convincing himself that he's doing what he's doing to be the savior of mankind mm-hmm. and cooper does the same thing where he gets this opportunity to be a pilot again and to do everything that he wanted to do yep. and that's really why he's going and his father-in-law calls him on that mm-hmm. and says that you know the right thing done for the wrong reasons yep. is bad it's evil and uh, and cooper's like well no it's the right thing
1: and i get this perk of mm, kind of fulfilling my my well, lost destiny he's, yeah he's a pilot that's now a farmer Mm-hmm. and um i could imagine that must be like for somebody like like that must be like a terrible life to live that you're just farming farming crops when mm-hmm. you know the things you've done in your your life before that have been amazing every opportunity that
0: he has for anything to be remarkable
1: yep. he jumps on
0: it like when he discovers that
1: drone yeah. the
0: indian drone flying around it's this this wonder
1: that he's, yeah oh you know, he disregards everything they have a flat tire but he's still plowing through those fields on this truck just to just to harness that draw.
0: Yeah, it's easy to get caught up in in everything that, Mm -hmm. in all of his enthusiasm, but he's just as guilty as everybody else. He's just as as flawed as everybody else. And it goes so far with him, uh, with Coop, that he wants so very much to be the hero that even though he's the one who's taught Murph how to think critically and taught Mm -hmm. her to apply the scientific method to this ghost in her room, she's done that. She's done exactly what he's asked. And then when she's presenting him with these facts and this, this documented experience, yeah. uh, this is when the, she interprets the Morse code that yeah. says stay. He's already made it up in his mind that, you know, this is inconsequential because I'm fulfilling. Absolutely. I, yeah, get, I get to be me again. Yep.
1: I'm not just farmer dad. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. super pilot coop again. But he knows he's been flat out told too that if if this doesn't happen then the human race is going to die mm-hmm. so he like i mean i'm sure there's that sense of adventure too but it's yeah. also preservation of his children too yeah
0: and it, i mean it's it's one comes just ahead oh, yeah. of the yeah. other
1: is what i'm saying
0: it's just when uh, when dr Mann does it it's a little bit more yeah. uh, a little bit more overt and it's also because with dr man we've just seen him kind of fail over and over again to be noble mm-hmm. like when he well, smashes coop in the face and yeah. tries to tries to smother him or suffocate him he's like yeah i'm gonna stay with you the whole time and he he tries to listen yeah, to coops yeah. dying words and tries to comfort him with images of his children but even in that you know in that experience he can't follow through on doing the right thing because yeah. he just he can't
1: tolerate the idea of causing this suffering and he's he's so racked with guilt that yeah. he just has well, to walk away from he's, it he's I mean he's a scientist right so i mean like like he's not a fighter right he's mm-hmm. he's a scientist right so i think this like shows you how desperate his character was that he's willing to kill the pilot uh of the re- the return trip just so he can push forward with this yeah one of the things i love is that the scene where they he confronts him and says you know like he calls him a coward and he just he just keeps on saying yes 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 as he's walking towards him because he knows like he knows that like yes i am a coward i have done this i have screwed everything up to me it's one of my favorite favorite dr man moments is that because he he didn't justify why he did everything he just admitted yes i'm a coward i tried i really tried but, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I well, it, he, out. he
0: sort of tries to justify it by saying this is what anybody would do. Yeah, and yeah. He says, like, this is humanity. Yeah, humanity that's true. is self-preservation. Yeah. Like, I'm just doing what anybody would do. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, mm-hmm. he's been alone for how many
1: years at that point? I, I don't know what the time think, dilation how I, I long he's been there. But what I've, I've read um, is that he was there about 20 years. Good um, God. I would have given up way before that. Well, I would have been hitting that button once I left. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think that's interesting is that when they wake him up and he's like... He does that speech and says, "Like, pray you never know what it's like to never see a human face again." And Romilly, who's on the surface with them, who has just spent twenty-three years up on the endurance, <laughs> I'd be stepping and going, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like, like I just got through that myself. I know what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It's just uh, like you see the two two characters that that have kind of suffered through that, where Romilly kind of became Zen-like afterwards when they. Um, like when they come back from Miller's planet and he's like, it's, you know, um, you know, I waited, I took a couple stretches and, but you look at the character's delivery of his lines before they leave. And then after, and he, there's a very Zen like quality to him that he's kind of like taking that time to, you know, grow as a person. And, and I, I don't know, just kind of, I don't know. He's, it just, I find there's like a shift in his character where dr man is the, almost the opposite right he's become manic and he's become paranoid and yeah. like he's he booby trapped his robot because it has all all the false data on there and um because he knows that if <laughs> the they giant
0: if, bomb yeah
1: yeah if he knows that if they actually go in and read um kip's data the robot that they're gonna find that he's falsified at all yeah I, th- I think
0: the difference there is that romley hasn't I mean, he's got no other option, right? Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't have a button that he can press. So, no. he, he doesn't have any kind of temptation. Like, what is he going to do? Crash? the? Is he going to, like, fly into the black hole himself? Yeah. I'm sure he maybe considered it, but he doesn't really have anybody he can call for help. Yeah. So, his options are either to just do it and deal with it or... I mean, there is no other option. I mean, death, I guess, yeah. would be another option. But for Dr. Mann, he's got this constant temptation and he knows what it feels like to give in to that. So then he has, after he's done that, he's got mm-hmm. nothing but time to justify his own actions. So instead of Romilly, who's got all this time to achieve enlightenment
1: or or whatever
0: it is that we're yeah, imagining. Well, and, that, and he's,
1: you know, he spent years studying the black hole and yeah, all this stuff. But also, let's, let's, if we look at it a different way, he was on a climate controlled ship, I guess, yeah. and not... A planet that was deathly cold for sixty seven hours during the day and sixty seven hours at night. I guess that would be a little more nerve wracking. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't I would like to see like the story of Doctor Man or Romley, what he did on the ship. Like I'm sure if they tapped into Tars and said, like, okay, well, so what happened? And he'd be like, Well, you know, like it got pretty dark in here for a bit. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Um There's actually like Nolan wrote The backstory for Dr. Man, it was actually in a comic for Wired. Mm. Um, So they kind of, it kind of sheds light more on his, Dr. Man's position in the film where he's frustrated because he's like, like you finally get out there, like, you know, like and then he realizes one man cannot survey an entire planet. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's insane to think that we could have done this. Mm -hmm. So he, it shows him where he's talking to Kip, his robot and saying like, you know, basically giving up on it. And asking him to, well, you know, what if we we falsify data to say it to to show this, right? It's just for theoretically, and the robot would say, no, we can't do that. And it just his frustration on that they would never find anything, and then he just ended up giving up going out. And then he actually, it's the last panel of the comic. It shows him overriding Kip's um, protocol so then that's when we see that he's hatched the plan too, right turning his his shiftiness up to a yeah. hundred I, I yeah. think that like theres is a quote in there, I can't remember what he says, something like, um, does life grow without dark or something like that or without light and then he says, like, does man become mad without humanity or something like that and so he kind of you see him kind of descend into this madness right
0: well just to to wrap that part up like i like I said at the beginning, like we have all these different characters. Mm-hmm saying you know dr man says this is what humanity is it's yep. self-preservation yep. it's you know this is what represents humanity and then you've got coop saying no exploration is what humanity mm-hmm. is this is what we are and it's beautiful that it's all true and yeah. there's all of that in everybody and that it's it's much more complicated than the narrative that we ever like to tell ourselves we want to say that it's one thing or mm-hmm. another but it's not it's always so much more complex and so much more muddled and morally ambiguous than we ever want it to be even when it comes to the continuation of the entire human yeah. race, like everything that we know as a concept, it's still really easy the, to slip into, to a darker way of thinking.
1: And I think they, they say that they mentioned like it was, it was, it was easier to, to lie to the human race just because they knew that the, the human race would be there were people would be more um, interested in saving themselves than sacrificing themselves to right. push science forward to, continue the human race without them yeah dr Mann mentions that
0: and then it, you get another kind of fun moment the the one scene where it makes sense for topher grace to be there is his yeah. character even
1: named? yeah i don't i yeah that's uh, that was it's, i always forget him and casey affleck i always i never think of them when i think of the movie i like <laughs> i know they're in it but like it just i because they're they're well topher grace i i honestly don't understand what his character like the point of his character in the movie obviously you know he's reminding us that we're against this medical thing or this this disease right he's mm-hmm. there he's i guess there to remind us i don't i don't know but like well he just, only shows medical skills yeah. like in that final scene yeah where he just shows
0: up with the stethoscope and you're like oh wait okay yeah. you're a doctor and yeah, then yeah, you're he also, says,
1: yeah let me check that cough
0: yeah right? you're also a love interest and you're also kind of her muscle but yeah. it's it's very strange but he has that great moment where he where after Murph has discovered what's, um, oh, what's the, the doctor's name? The big physicist, the well Michael Caine. Yeah. What's his character's name? Dr. Uh, Brand. Dr. Brand. You're right. So when Murph has just discovered Dr. Brand's nefarious yep. <laughs> plot, um, or at least the big secret that he's been keeping, um, Topher Grace asks Murph like, okay, so are we going to tell everybody? And she says, no, we're not, we're not going to, because yep. that would just cause panic and then he yells at her he says are you not doing exactly what you're crucifying this other guy's legacy for and she's like well well, yeah but no and it's like well yeah that's exactly what you're doing you're making the same choice you're making the same compromise Mm -hmm. at the same time the difference is you yourself just have chosen to not give up yet because you feel a strong emotional attachment to your dad like that doesn't actually hold up as (laughs) well as you think it does so even these these amazing heroic characters are also you know flawed in the same ways and you see how easy it is to make those choices to kind of just slip a little bit over in a direction that you weren't planning on mm-hmm. in the first place another part of what makes this movie so tragic and i think that despite it being so hopeful and optimistic the film is
1: often at its most poignant when it's it's most tragic mm-hmm. like the well everybody thinks they're doing the right thing in this movie right like um like casey affleck's character is like he's good he's just gonna farm because he's like he's good at it um you know he's taking over the neighbor's farms who have died he's staying there because he needs to, he needs to keep these crops going and keep, keep people fed. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's not right. He's like, he's, he's done it at the loss of one of his children um, who's passed because of the, the disease. And you look at her, what Jessica Chastain's character has gone through and how you mentioned that she's picking up right where Michael Caine get off. We have Dr. Man marooning people on the planet because he thinks he's doing what's right.
0: With uh, Tom, is that his name? Yes. Uh, yeah. So with Tom, tom as well it's the only thing that we know that he's good at is farming Mm -hmm. and when he gets his aptitude test and finds out that he's going to be a farmer he's thrilled because he's like oh I i found something i'm good at and for him i'm sure it feels like i am also carrying on my dad's legacy like they both are yep it's just tom's carrying on the part of his dad's legacy that his dad thought that he was not necessarily too good for but like yep. this isn't where my skills are best used but then yep. Tom's kind of picking that up and running with it and yep. really embracing it and that choice is killing his family yeah there's so so much tragedy yeah and uh especially for me with Coop um when I first saw this movie um it was when my wife was expecting with our second child and Mm -hmm. so i had a little boy at home and so every time coop had his dad moments it was just it was tearing my heart out yeah the the first part where he's um when the you know the the space poop really hits the fan when they've gone through the first time dilation after Mm -hmm. spending too much time on oh or whatever that water planet is did you just say naboo i did (laughs) yeah where he comes back and he's got all these messages yes. of his children moving on with their lives and like abandoning hope and him missing these that giants. That's such a heartbreaking it's, sequence. Yeah. That like it was, it was really horrible for me because I couldn't imagine imagine that experience and it really gives you an idea of what exactly he's given up you know at first when he's like you know it might be a couple of years like yeah. they, they think it's going to be okay it's two years to get to saturn do yeah. their thing and then come back and they understand time dilation as like an abstract concept but mm-hmm. that's really the moment where his sacrifice hits home and it's not just his sacrifice it's he's sacrificed all of this for his family yeah. and then time and time again when it seems like it's hopeless then you get that it just punches you right in the heart again that yeah. all of this that you've been suffering that we've been suffering along with you it's all been for nothing it's all been for nothing just constant kicks right to the heart oh man um and, and when he's in the tester act That's when it's. That's when it hits another really poignant. Yeah. That's when it's really effective again. When he's, he's trying to beg himself in the past Mm -hmm. to stay and say like no, just like stay and die with your family because it's
1: better than what you're going through right now. And it's interesting because you see that's like I love that that's that scene because you you see him run the gamut of emotion right where he's like you know he's pounding on the bookcase and you know doing the the stay message for him to stay and then when he finally realizes that oh okay i'm here i'm here now because i'm serving i'm serving a purpose to communicate with my daughter right and to see him accept that and then move move forward with it to know like why he's you know why he's he's been there right or why he had to do it mm-hmm. like it's 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 fantastic like it's and it's crazy that he's talking about the concept of love transcending dimensions to a robot like when you you think about it, that's that's really what's happening in that scene, and it's uh, I mean obviously he's it's a plot device to explain to the audience what's going on, but uh, I don't know I, I think it's a fantastic scene that, that in the movie. Yeah, uh, another one for me was when um, after Doctor Man
0: has just like betrayed Coop or whatever we want to call it mm-hmm. after he's smashed his helmet and he says you know that when you die you're gonna see your kids again, yeah. and when we see coop's last thoughts yeah it's him fighting with his daughter and her at the most devastated he's ever seen yeah. her and for that to be like his last moment on earth his last moment his last breath of life his last s- firings of his synapses is yep. spent on breaking his heart once again yeah. and reminding him of exactly the pain that has been caused by his effort to to be valiant um but then you get you get that same experience you get almost a happy payoff at the end when Murph is laying in her bed and yeah. you know she she says that line where uh you know, like I knew that you were coming back because my dad promised me he would. Mm. And that like, you know, it just, like, yeah. well up again, even just thinking about it, just, you know, the idea of fulfilling a promise to your daughter and, you know, because that's as humans, those are the strongest experiences that we know are the connections with our family. Absolutely. Like, as much as easy as it is to roll our eyes at Anne Hathaway's Dr. Brand or, or mm-hmm. Coop when he starts talking about how, you know, love and gravity are the two things that, that can cross these dimensions. But I mean, like that's, that's the strongest, strongest, strongest bonds
1: absolutely (laughs) well you have you have kids too right so like like, i I have two i have two kids myself and and like it's like you have this crazy connection i remember like when both my kids were born like like instantly falling in love with them Mm -hmm. I, i remember when i remember when they held my daughter up and they said you know she's a girl she's beautiful and like i i wept like i've never wept before in my life um, we had some medical complications, so it was a touch and go type birth, right? But like, but from the that moment on, like, like my heart belonged to these children, right? And and the bond that I have with them, I like, I really believe it is something that would transcend space and time.
0: And even if it is, you know, the the movie's using that as a, mm-hmm. a
1: as a plot, it is crazy device, a it's crazy that a movie that's like so, like, God, it's hands so dirty with science it just throws that all away to say that like love is the the true bond between us all.
0: Yeah, but i i can't i still can't decide if it does a good enough job to say that it does or even if it's just saying like listen, we have to Anne Hathaway's Doctor Brand does an okay job of explaining it, but she's doing it when she's trying to rationalize her behavior. Yes. Or she's saying, like, I'm feeling this compulsion yeah. towards saving this guy. Yep. So, you know, maybe all these biological imperatives aren't all there is to love. Mm-hmm. And Coop's like,
1: No, it's you know yep. it's survival. It's Yeah, and then he that's when he turns the corner when he's you know, he's there because the you know the Beings of the fifth dimension put him there because they know that that bond is going to... He'll find a way. He'll find a way to to communicate with his daughter because they have that bond. Right. I mean, in theory, I guess they could have put Dr. Brand, like Amelia, into the weren't the Tesseract and communicated with her father. I guess, in theory, they could have done that because that would have done the same thing. Yeah. I actually don't think... I've never thought about that. I think it's more just it's interesting to look at the concept of love
0: and not just dismissing it as as these kind of biological impulses because that Mm -hmm. is what they are but it can also have meaning beyond that while still being that Mm -hmm. in that the the bulk beings as i've seen them referred to and i think we've called them that already yeah um well, I get, sorry, I'm going to take a step back when they are, when the crew is first deciding which planet to land on mm-hmm. and, uh, they're trying to decide whether or not they're going to go down to the water planet. Yeah. Uh, Miller. Yeah. Is Miller, yeah. Is Miller's planet,
1: Miller's Mann's planet and Edmund's planet.
0: Right. So one. when they're first deciding to go down to Miller's planet and they're arguing about time and whether mm-hmm. or not it's worth it. And brand says, yes, we need to coop is right because we need to start factoring in time as a resource that we have at our disposal, same yep. as gas. And it's, it's almost like the the bulk beings have figured out that love is also a resource that there's kind of a finite amount of it that they can milk and yep. you know if they can find a rich source of it then it is something that they can use so it doesn't really matter where it comes from mm-hmm. because it still does exist. Yeah. And I mean for I don't know if this would have the same resonance for people who aren't parents and I don't want to be a dick and being like if you're not a dad yeah. you don't get it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean if you I mean, you'd like to think that like if you yourself were in a tesseract and, and you have daughter and i have a daughter and a son yeah right so let's say just for the sake of being fair let's say your son because we already yep. talked about your daughter if your son was visible somewhere like you would go through hell and earth to try Absolutely. and get to your son Absolutely. that's the only thing that you knew existed yep. in the world around you like yeah it's it's real And it's okay that it's from this thing that's biologically inherent to Mm -hmm. us at the same time well
1: yeah because the really if we think about it the bulk beings only have two resources available to them that we we can use as humans as beings of four dimensions uh is love and gravity right are the Mm -hmm. only things that can exert through i guess through the dimensions that's what they're they're Mm -hmm. saying right so i guess by picking cooper and and you know having him be part of that that was you know they're using again like you said love as a resource for them they know that that that's the two it's the magnet that will pull the two things together Mm -hmm. and and like we're just talking like philosophical about it and then like as a filmmaking from a filmmaking standpoint the movie like i can go on and on about that Yeah, well this is where i'll need
0: you to take over because i uh you know my my background is in is analysis, so, so you know I can look at something and go mm-hmm. ooh and ah as much as I want, but to really kind of
1: understand how it's getting there, that's uh, I mean, well, you yourself
0: are a filmmaker, yeah. So. It's
1: like a lot of people they don't really consider Nolan as one of the fantastic directors of our time. I don't see his name come up as you know one of like you know in the company of like a Scorsese or Tarantino, uh, and I th- I really think the, the if you look at Nolan's last three personal movies. You take the Batman movies out of the equation, right? So we're talking the Prestige, the Prestige, Inception, inception and, interstellar. and Interstellar. Like, I don't know if you can think of a filmmaker who has put three solid films together like that, as as in their body of work. And keep in mind that he did three Batman movies, where the second one was one of the like like I said was a fantastic movie on its own. If you took the the Batman mythos and and everything out of it. like it was a fantastic movie um as on on its own so like and if you look at Memento, nolan's uh like his first major film it's a masterpiece and um i feel his entire body work is is incredible for a director and i don't feel he gets a lot of the do that that um some other directors are getting out there yeah i think that culturally we kind of i think that it's easy to be dismissive
0: because he's doing that thing that or he seems to be doing that thing that um i can't remember if it's ben affleck talking to matt damon or matt damon talking to ben affleck but in the Janson bob strike back <laughs> where they're like no you do the safe picture yes. and then you do
1: yeah. the art picture so it, you know it's and i believe that was probably was with the batman movies it was yeah, like and that, and that's one for I'm them saying. one for me exactly so he does the Batman movie. Yeah, uh, allegedly
0: to bankroll the prestige, yep. and then does the Dark Knight and blows everybody's mind, and yep. uh, and then we get Inception. So it's yep. like oh my god, like you're unstoppable, yep. and then he's like, all right, fine, I'll just get the check for the Dark Knight so <laughs> yep. that I can make Interstellar. Like it's yeah, I I, I think that that's maybe a little bit more it kind of exposes the business more than we'd like it to. So it makes it harder to look exclusively at his body of work and not just the, maybe the, the, and I'm entirely hypothesizing here. Like I don't actually know what those transactions were like, but it it seems like that's what's happening. And I
1: think if you're like, if you're somebody like, like Nolan and you're taking on uh, like the Batman franchise from Warner brothers, I'm sure that you know every day you're you're dealing with the studio on notes and things have to be this way and and you know it's probably you know it's not making a film for yourself because you're you're just a cog in this big studio wheel right yeah like Joss Whedon gave up after two yeah exactly
0: Christopher Nolan at least yeah. finished
1: off his trilogy but I mean his his I feel his trilogy was was quite good. I'm not a big fan of Batman Begins like out of out of the three of them I think Begins is the weakest but they're still good movies. Uh, like he—he's Ledger won an Academy Award for the Joker performance, and like the only person who's won an Academy Award for a comic book movie was under the direction of Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like—I um, I feel like he's—he's he's such a hands-on type filmmaker. And if—if if you watch any of the behind-the-scenes um, stuff of of on the Blu-ray of Interstellar, you really see how he is involved in every single step of the, the movie where like the actors that they, they put them on harness, like on these, they literally hook them up on the same crane as a camera. Um, you know, where they put a bunch of rocks on one side and they're, they're literally on a crane and Nolan's the one that's pushing them through the set himself and lifting them up. Um, they mounted all these ships on huge gimbals. Like they made full scale models of the Ranger ship and put it on a massive gimbal and Nolan himself maneuvered the ship, the uh, like all like the entire time, like all like he did all the motion control stuff himself. Um, even with when they did the soundtrack, he was there for the entire time they recorded the score. Uh, like his his hands are are on everything with he does, and I think he's like it's just the just the enormity of what they they did with Interstellar with the the sets and the just the the process of they they made was incredible um i love that they went with more practical effects if they could do anything in camera they would um where like there's not a lot of cgi in interstellar and they wanted like they wanted the movie to be timeless like he said that i wanted this movie so in 30 years you could watch it and it still it still held, held up right like in prepping for the force awakens I you know i i went back and revisited the the old Star Wars and watched the the prequels and the CG does not age well in that at all. Even in the special editions on the Star Wars, like what they've added in there, it it doesn't hold up now. It it looks it looks really terrible. Um, I watched The Incredibles with my kids a couple of weeks ago, and The Incredibles is Harold is one of Pixar's best movies. There are some shots in there that look really dated. Um, because the c g it just doesn't age well, where them they built real sets they like there's very little computer computer generation like c g i happening it was more just to enhance the real mm-hmm. stuff and they like they built models they built like the endurance they built a real set for the endurance that they could tilt on one massive gimbal
0: yeah it and i mean that's something that it <laughs> I mean, we saw it probably more with, you You know, we've touched on Star Wars a couple of times now mm-hmm. with The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. No spoilers coming out of this part here, yeah. but, you know, there are times when something happens where you see a creature or something like that and you're just like, well, that's a that's a puppet. And then you're like, yeah, that's a puppet. Like, <laughs> yeah. good for you. Like, you could have tried to do something else with this, but I would, you know... It made it more magical, mm-hmm. and I mean, in this case, this you know, Interstellar is not necessarily an homage to itself or to the to the the art of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that
1: practicality is well, it's is it's a huge homage to 2001, right? Right, like he's a like, uh, and no one's gone on record saying that it's one of his favorite movies, and you you see it woven all through Interstellar from the robots, like the robots are pretty much the monolith in 2001, but right. that uh, can walk around and talk the way they did. Uh, like they did everything with models and he um, that's how they, they did it in 2001. Even the score. Uh, if there's a the one scene in 2001 where the, um, the ship's docking with the station and they play a classical ballet piece and in interstellar, um when they start sp- spinning the endurance the, the even though the score is original score it's very much like a ballet like you feel that there's there's a rhythmic thing to it like there's this this orchestration that's going through and it's a huge tip of the hat to 2001 even like the the tesseract the going into the black hole it like you can put those two movies re- literally on top of each other and there's a lot of similarities between the two um, and it's, I think it's fantastic that, that they, they approached all this with the practical effects and, and trying to keep everything as real as possible. Even, um, I, uh, Anne Atheway said in, in one of the, the, uh, behind the scenes, thing, she says, it's very easy to get lost in this, in my environment because everything's tactile around. I can, I can, you know, perform in there where when you're performing on a green screen, you're questioning, wow, do I, am I looking totally stupid doing this right now? Because there's nothing. And I don't know if you ever, have you watched the, there's a, Aziz Ansari has a series on Netflix called Master of None. Master of None, gun, yeah. I'm about halfway there's, through it. So yeah. there's a scene in Master of None where he goes to do pickup shots for the, what, what is it? The sickening. The movie <laughs> the sickening, in, right? yes. And it's him and another guy and they're in office chairs in front of a green screen. And the office chair has like gun triggers on the side that's the only physical prop and him and this other actor are like rolling around in office chairs pretending to shoot guns and they're going oh the sickening and it's like it's absolutely ridiculous all right and And then you have the the uh the director and the director's like like, whatever can we get some notes on this like whatever we're just going to change it all in post yeah yeah, it'll be all cgi it's not coming out for a year anyway so (laughs) but i mean that's the danger that's happening i think in in cinema today i mean like look at the um you know, and I hate to bag on this movie so much, but look at the Superman versus Batman trailer. Like there's that final hero shot of the three of them. Um, you know, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman. And it's this, this hero shot of them. And it's to me, I'm, I'm when I look at that, I'm, I'm, I can, all I can think is I'm looking at three actors in front of green screen right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, I, as much as, you know, computer generation has helped the industry. I feel that, it's become a crutch for some filmmakers, and and it's um, it, it's a shame to see that that we're losing practicality because it's cheaper to do things digitally, and it's it's, it's a shame because I don't think that, I just don't think it's going to hold up, and I think in twenty years if you watch Batman versus Superman you'll think it it probably looks like garbage. Yeah,
0: but in twenty years we'll have Interstellar. Yeah, look in twenty back years you look so. at
1: Interstellar, and I think that I to me personally as like as somebody looking through it through like a cynical filmmaker's nitpicky lens there's really only one or two shots that i think are poor in the movie but that's and that's saying a lot for a movie that's yeah. got, like got a lot of effects in it yeah
0: so along with being uh, an homage to 2001 mm-hmm. i felt like the movie was also very timely in the fact that humanity or at least north america because i can't speak for mm-hmm. you know anybody else really but we really seem to be falling back in love with space, and I think that culture has been a big part of that absolutely and I feel like a really important tipping point and this might have just been personal, but do you remember a few years ago when Felix Baumgartner did that mm-hmm. big jump? yep, out of the balloon, yeah, and that was the first like i I was sitting there, my son was in a high chair, my wife was trying to feed him, and I mean you know how that goes <laughs> and I made everybody in the room. I was like, stop, we're going to watch this because this is something incredible <laughs> that somebody is accomplishing. And even though it was a stunt and it was put on by Red Bull, yeah. you know, it, it really felt like it was like, Oh yeah. Like this is what it feels like to be in wonder of human accomplishment. And it seems like every year for the last couple of years, maybe this is just effective marketing or, or whatever the case may be. But there's been this series of, uh, of movies and of culture that is again about, space and I'm not talking about Star Wars like I'm mm-hmm. talking about you know it was gravity first yep. and then interstellar then we had the Martian this year yep and mixed in with there we had Neil deGrasse Tyson
1: do Cosmos
0: where we're just again we're we're looking outside of the earth and maybe we're just scared that it's all gonna end so we're like uh, shit what well, else is out there uh,
1: but I mean we'll lo- look at um just look at what, what was recently accomplished with SpaceX right being able to launch launch in uh, uh, shuttle into space to the the ISS and effectively land the rocket. Like that is a game changer for, for space travel now, because that's a huge resource to send the rocket up. That's going to either blow up or fall into the ocean or it's, it's a huge waste. Right. But the fact that now we've got like a sustainable method to go to space where really it's all it's costing is fuel. Now there's hope for, for what the the future is going to be. I mean, we, I remember being a kid and and uh, like watching with my mom uh, the Columbia launch the very first space shuttle Columbia launch and and it landing too and just being like in awe of wow like I cannot like when I was I think 11 or 12 when that was out no I think it was maybe 10 and um, like it was just in awe like that the space shuttle was the coolest looking thing in the world to me because it like it looked like a spaceship and I've actually seen the real space shuttle in California and it's an impressive piece of machinery.
0: So I, yeah, I, I don't know how much of it is. I mean, like the science has to be there first. Like yeah. there have to be people actually doing it. So I don't know if culture is just doing a great job of tapping into that, or if culture's, you know, our, our pop culture is leading that, where it's saying, you know, we know that cool stuff is going on, so let's get everybody pumped up. It's almost like space pop propaganda. Yeah, it's it,
1: you know, it, it's getting need us excited. We we need we need that. We need to, you know, like as we look to go to Mars or or I mean, we haven't been to the moon in forever, but. I know the end goal for SpaceX is Mars. I, I think it's fascinating that that um, like like people are getting behind this and and we're pushing like the boundaries of the human race further than we've we ever had because technology is really starting to catch up that we can actually do these things. NASA actually has a they've launched a telescope up into space that um, has been surveying planets and they have found a, ma- a perfect match for Earth. The problem is it's 500 light years away. Like it's an impossible mission for anyone to go on to, mm-hmm. even if, even if we threw a a, a boat there that travel at the speed of light, it'd take 500 years to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's essentially why uh, the wormhole was created in the movie. Right. Is so that we right. could <laughs> easily navigate such a, such a long journey.
0: Right. It's funny. The, uh, you mentioned that the, my guest for the Armageddon episode was my dad yeah, and I, specifically remember and I hope that he doesn't listen to this but he uh, I very specifically remember him saying one time that he was talking about kind of what's base means and and how mm-hmm. important it is and that you know we need people to go out and we need people to do things and i think it was like 10 at the time and he was like if somebody asked me to go and there was there was a very good chance that i wasn't coming back i'd be gone and I'm like as a child i was yeah. like what the hell man <laughs> but then i also you know i've, I've come yeah. to realize that well yeah like that's you know we need people like you doing that sort of thing and, and really getting out there and kind of doing the coop and being willing to put other things, you know, sacrifice in order to to get to the next step of wherever it is that we're going to go. We need the explorers and we need the caretakers. You yeah. know, we need somebody taking care of what's going on back home in case the exploration goes bad. Because, you know, we, in this movie, we sent out 12, yeah, 12 Lazarus people yeah. and
1: one survived. Yeah. I don't think, I, I mean, it's implied at the end that Edmunds. Yeah, well, is, yeah, uh, Edmunds died. Like they, I think they imply he died not like a rock slide. Some like a like a rock slide came and wiped out his base or space camper or whatever yeah. it was, yeah. So
0: you know he met some kind of tragic end. So yep. I mean even if it goes right, there's plenty of yeah. obstacles that oh, could yeah. possibly
1: go wrong. I, I listened to I was listening to a podcast with uh, Chris Hatfield on uh it was it was the Joe Rogan podcast and I think he explained it really well. He said, like Us as a human race, everything we've done so far in space is the equivalent of we've got ourselves a nice little sailboat, which is the ISS, but all we've done is just go up and down the coast so far. We haven't even thought to, to hit open water yet. Like we haven't been able to achieve that. And just even the challenges that they're, they're going through on the ISS just to, to maintain, like it's, it makes you think that Mars is still a very, very far, far off for us. Mm -hmm. We have those, Concerns
0: and those worries that that exist in the world of the movie. I mean, NASA mm-hmm. isn't necessarily hidden deep underground right yeah. now, but you know there are concerns like why are we spending money on this mm-hmm. instead of absolutely uh, you know all the resources that could be spent on on feeding well, the world and yeah. and and things like that. But you know, I I think that it does have to be both, and this movie is a great reminder of you know what else humanity can be other than you know, Mud, just taking
1: yeah. care of ourselves. And I think it's a crime, like if we look at. How much is spent on war every year? And if we could save that, the budget of war and put that back into exploration, like how far we could advance as a, as a race, but we're too busy spending it, killing each other and making movies. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. I mentioned at the top of the show that I watched the uh, film Love. Love, yes. So if, if anyone listening to this who's a fan of Interstellar, um, definitely check out Love. I think the movie does kind of fall apart, I, f- I find. But um, the thing that really intrigued me is that it's a it's a it's kind of a one-man show, um, but the set and everything was built uh, the in the director's parents' driveway. So he built a fake ISS at his parents' house. And shot the entire film pretty much in that that set, and it looks incredible. I think the budget on the film was half a million dollars, um, but um, the set is. There's really only one shot in the whole thing where it looks okay. This is a homemade space station in a guy's parents' garage. <laughs> like that's that's only really only one part of the element. Other than that, it's it's fantastically done, and and it just I love that. Again, they're using practical effects and and going into that. Um, it's that classic style of movie making, not relying on. Let's do this all CG. Like mm-hmm. as much uh-huh. as I think, because you can do Gravity that. Gravity, basement too. right? Yeah, like can, yeah, like I think Gravity is a fantastic looking film. We have yet to see what Gravity is going to look like in five or ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Because even though they did the the CG the CG as photorealistic as they could, I, I don't know how that's going to hold up. But I can, you can watch Love in 10 years, and it's still going to hold up because everything's tangible.
0: So the, the comparisons, were they mainly technical, or did you find like thematically they were similar? Um, or
1: Like, what, what, guess, is, what I mean, is Love about? Uh, Love is, the story is, um, from what I gather from it, again, it, it kind of falls apart, <laughs> um, that uh, an astronaut is sent up to the ISS because the ISS has been abandoned, and he's there to kind of do maintenance on it, and then loses contact with Earth. And so he's up in the ISS all by himself. And so we kind of follow him as through, uh, they don't really give a timeline. They mentioned like six years. He's still got everything kind of in together in his mind, um, at the six year mark. But then we kind of lose time with him and we, we come back and he's got a big beard and he's like tattooed himself all with stuff he's found on, on the, um, like he's losing his mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant the way they they unravel the set too. So you kind of you kind of um, dive into that madness with him too, where it's all kind of even his environment. I mean, if he, he was starts stuck like in a tin can, his environment and yeah, kind of try to create meaning from absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah um, like if you were stuck in a tin can for twenty years, like eventually, like you see it break down. Like at the beginning, everything's beautiful. There's a wall of fans behind him that I think it's like nine or twelve fans that. That are behind him that you always see spinning, but near the end of the movie, you see one that's just kind of laboring along. Hmm. It's a fantastic movie. Like It falls apart, but as from a technical standpoint, I think the movie is so on point. And I think it's my only qualm with the movie was that there's gravity. He's on the space station and there's gravity. So you kind of see him like in, in an office chair kind of bouncing back and forth. They don't have him on a 1G loop. So if they would have done that, if they just would have established that, yes, we're spinning the the ISS in a one-sheet loop, I would have bought it. Mm -hmm. The fact that they don't, and he's on gravity, it just, like, he's, he's, it kind of ripped me out of the movie a little bit, because I just couldn't, I couldn't suspend belief enough, you know, and I understand that it's an indie film, so they, they couldn't do zero G. They tried, they did some really cool things with the camera, and, and made, made the camera give you that illusion that he was weightless, but, um there again there's just just little things and i'm just mm-hmm. nitpicking on it but yeah. it's a good movie
0: um well i, I could not do any better for 500,000 dollars <laughs> yeah. i
1: guarantee you that so
0: that's great i now i'm really tempted i'm going to have to put that on that's on netflix right yeah, it's on netflix yeah all right netflix canada or netflix are you, canada, are you one of those yeah. uh, vpn no folk i right?
1: gave up on i mean netflix canada has i feel they've caught up now
0: yeah i was i recently did a a guest spot that i think yeah it'll be out by the time this episode comes out Mm -hmm. on a show called netfreaks which is uh they do all the netflix original programming Mm -hmm. and so i they were asking me about kind of what we do here and originally i mean even as recently as february when the show started canadian netflix was kind of a joke that you'd have i mean that the the reference that i always used was like we had airplane two but we didn't have the first airplane (laughs) right like that was the kind of just like nonsense catalog that we had available but now yeah like every day there's something coming out and you know fact, i, I, I put out that, that, that list
1: every week Go canadian for. netflix is the only one getting the force awakens i think so it's pretty exciting. awesome so everyone around the world is going to kind of feel our pain that we've gone through that yeah. you know like the frustration of going to watch a youtube video and it's like oh sorry this is not available in your country
0: welcome to our pain yeah.
1: <laughs> all right uh, anything else you wanted to cover or no were... no i mean i could just i could just drone on it oh yeah let's let's touch on the score Okay. On this. I, 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 lo- I really want to talk about this. I I, I think, you know, as, as much as I don't think like, people put, should put stock in Academy Awards and, and all that stuff, but I really feel that that Interstellar was 100% robbed when it came to the score. It lost out to the Grand Budapest Hotel.
0: Yeah, you're, you're kind of I, looking I, at me. I love like, Grand Budapest Hotel.
1: Okay. And I, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is a fantastic movie, and I think the score is a fantastic score, but it's a Wes Anderson score. It is a score that you could interchange with any one of the movies he's done. I really felt that the score was just another element of the movie, just like his cinematography. Um, But it was a familiar thing that I, I don't know, I've personally felt that you could have put dump that score in any Wes Anderson movie and it would have worked where with interstellar i feel that they've put a lot of love and effort into it and the they they the underlying layers that they when it came to creating it you know they really want to make sure that none of the none of everything uh, any piece of the score none of it is computer generated it is all played by human beings so even though they scored it all digitally first they went back and recorded those things with, with orchestras and had them do things like like tap the strings of the violin with pens to simulate that the clock in in when they're on miller's planet so as soon as we land we hear there's a clock ticking because we know that every hour they're down there represents 7 hours back on earth so the fact that they they built that into the score and had people playing the instruments they they in a way they shouldn't be doing it like the orchestra the brass section would like clasp, like push their hands over the mouthpiece to push air out in a percussive manner so everything was kind of like like a ticking clock and the fact that they, they used a, a pipe organ for the the main instrument and the whole thing and you hear the the human element of it where it's air breathing through these pipes I think it's it's a fantastic uh, like a fantastic use of the medium. And Nolan uh, said he said it was important to me that the music always was played by humans because it in the movie it always reminded us that yes there was that human race those that that people that were always there in the background that we were doing this for and the fact that it wasn't recognized as the top score by whoever the people that choose it over Grand Budapest Hotel like was an absolute crime.
0: Well, it gets the, uh, Edward Platero Academy oh, yeah. it's, Award, it's, which and it's is a fantastic. I
1: mean, it's an amazing, amazing score. Yeah. Like, look at, I, like, dare you to watch the docking sequence and like, just not be caught up in, in like, it's so perfect. I
0: mean, it's been said before that scores are often at their most effective when you don't notice them, mm-hmm. but it, it's so it really just once they get into space, that's when you know i, I take notes when i mm-hmm. when i watch these movies to talk about them my notes just kind of stop once they get into space yep. until you know until we start cutting back to earth and i'm like oh oh, crap like because at that point you're just you're swimming in the experience Mm -hmm. of these visuals that you've never seen before and this these musical movements of the ship and you know the docking sequence as you mentioned like you're you forget to breathe when you're watching that because you're just like i this is probably going to go well but like i don't it's it's not quite nerve-wracking but like i said you're you're swimming in the music and the the visual experience and it's i don't know it's more I I, i don't use this word lightly but it, it, that middle kind of third section mm-hmm. where it's just them exploring and it's mm-hmm. them being the explorers that coupes very much wants to be. It's, it's a sublime experience mm-hmm. that, you know, there's not much out there. That's that, that captivating and that enrapturing. And mm-hmm. then the score plays so much into that, where you're probably having all these subconscious visceral reactions mm-hmm. to it. They're realizing, like you, you said, like the time of being represented with the, the ticking of the pens on violins and things yeah. like that. Like it's, I I,
1: I think it's like, uh, I, I, I like Hans Zimmer's work and I've liked everything he's done. And, and you know, they did, you know, the the work they did on Batman and stuff, it was great. I mean, I think he's done some fantastic stuff. But I feel that the Interstellar score is probably the best thing he's ever done. Um, They did a couple screenings in England at the Royal Albert Hall where they screened the movie and had a live orchestra playing the score. I would have killed to go see that. I think that would have been one of the most amazing things um, just to witness. I've seen clips on YouTube. Um, and it looked pretty incredible, but, mm-hmm. um, like who, what movies do that? You don't see people doing that with, with movies now mm-hmm. like that are the like movies that are celebrating, you know, the score that, that, uh, accompanies it with, you know, doing a live thing. You don't, I don't know if I've ever seen that. It's, now you've got me wanting to go back and watch it again, just to listen. And... Just listen to the, you can, you like listen to the score on Apple music. It's, it, it transcends you back into the movie. And, and, it's like there's a feeling that it invokes that I, like the score is so distinct that um, you know you can listen to the grand budapest hotel score and it'll you know of course it'll evoke that the feeling of the west anderson movie but again i don't for me personally i really feel that that could have been interchanged with any other movies he's done mm-hmm. like with um, moonrise kingdom I have the score for the uh, soundtrack for Moonrise Kingdom, which I think is a fantastic score. But you, if you put the disc in the could, wrong you cover, exactly. then you would, yeah, you if would, know you would know have the put like, play that behind Grand Budapest Hotel. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm watching Wes <laughs> Anderson movie, and this is, uh, you know, this is about standard fare for it. And I, again, I'm not trying to take away anything from Wes Anderson or hit the team that, or especially whoever did the Grand Budapest Hotel score. But I just, in 2014, I don't think anyone talked topped the uh, score that that Hans Zimmer did with Interstellar.
0: Well, the way that I always like to wrap up these conversations is uh, since we watched this on Netflix mm-hmm. I do want to hear what you put this into uh, your Netflix profile in terms of a star rating so as a reminder it's one two three four or five stars mm-hmm. you can't do a half star one star means you hated it which I don't think is going to mm-hmm. be the case two stars didn't like it three stars means liked it four stars means really liked it and five stars means you loved it uh, as well after you tell me that I want to hear what your MVP is so what your your standout experience oh, okay. of the movie uh, um, is so let's let's hear
1: it uh for me it's definitely a five-star movie it's um like i, I touched on earlier on it's to me it just feels like a like a, a great song um that i just it, for me i just i can't get enough of it i have to like it's a movie that i will always you know visit throughout my through my life uh, as far as the mvp i i oh, it's hard to say it's um no, it doesn't, coming, it, the biggest surprise coming out of this whole thing is is and we, and we we're going to talk about it, is the robots right? right Tars and case when they first show tars and he's behind them like clunking away in the the hallway like uh, I remember thinking to myself what a horrible robot <laughs> like this robot seems like a huge piece of junk and then when we on we're on Miller's planet and we see case turn into that Asterix thing and we see what these things are built out of I, and it, I think it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. And the fact that like Nolan himself and his brother came up with a concept for these robots, like this was their invention. And, uh, I saw a thing where, with Adam Savage from Mythbusters and, in talking about the movie and, you know, he wasn't crazy about a lot of the stuff, but he said, the one thing I took out of this thing is TARS and case are fantastic pieces of engineering. Um, and it's a totally practical thing that we should actually look at because, the way it's built, the way they're built is like perfect. So I, I, I love that. I don't know. I, I love the characters and I love that even though they're, they're robots, they're given different personalities. I love that. They, they made them practical effects and they actually had like Bill Werman was on set walking these big aluminum clunky things Um, just so they could interact with the actress they could easily CG those robots and Mm -hmm. the fact that they made them practical I think was uh, I I love it Mm -hmm.
0: yeah um, I don't think this has ever happened exactly like this before so my rating is also five stars it's a it's a phenomenal movie Um, with some incredibly poignant and personal moments for Mm me, but it's technically masterful. The sound, as I'm about to discover Mm -hmm. when I re-listen to it, is is magical as well. Um, And it's filled with, like, hope and despair in equal measure, and I think that's just such a tremendous representation of what life is, but at no point does anybody ever give up on life because of its duality Mm -hmm. and multiplicity. I don't even want to say duality, because that's really denying a wider spectrum of things, but it despite all its complexity, at no point is anybody giving up on life. And I mm-hmm. mean as human beings, like what nope. else is there other than affirmation of life, right? Yep. And my MVP was also going to Tarzan and Bill Irwin mm-hmm. because of with robot companions, right? Like once you think of that you're thinking of you know like data where it's mm-hmm. almost the exact opposite. Where you know, you're shaped like a human but he acts like a robot or C-3PO again, shaped humanoid, but acts differently as opposed to with, and I'm saying TARS as just like a shortcut for Tarzan case, but where they have this personality and they have this, this sense of fun. And I think that those robots more than even like the ships and anything else, it shows this amazing accomplishment by humanity in terms of what we're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So you build this robot So not only this super crazy, amazing, futuristic looking robot that makes you feel like you're so far in the future, Mm -hmm. these are robots that, I mean, granted, they're not, they can't do everything that they do in the movie, but like, it's a, as you said, it's a practical effect that somebody came up with and actually did. Uh, So it's like the future is now at the same time. And even though Taurus himself, and I say him just because yeah, that's the voice he's assigned is that, that- So even though TARS kind of makes the joke about, you know, being the evil robot, yeah. he, like he almost talks like Bender sometimes from Futurama <laughs> yeah. about like, destroy all humans. Yeah. They're just like, all right, simmer down. Let's take the humor down to 75%. Mm-hmm. So like, even though he pokes fun at that trope like you're never worried about these robots you're Mm -hmm. never worried that they're gonna you know turn on us it's they have these characters that could have easily fallen into these these shortcuts of storytelling and they don't and instead they act as really amazing examples of what human beings are capable of when they are trying Mm -hmm. to do incredible things but it's also pretty poignant that you know you, you talked about how you know it's it's tragic that we spend so much time Financing the military, and so so little of that on exploration, but these robots that we've said said are kind of like the the pinnacle of human accomplishment or or quite near it are ex-military you know Mm -hmm. it's they're repurposed to military tools and i don't know if it's true but i mean that's the narrative that we get so often is that well you know like war is bad but like when we're spending all this money like we get some pretty cool stuff out of it at the other end (laughs) and you're like oh well
1: yeah that doesn't seem worth it if they're gonna build the tars for us then yeah maybe i'll be a little lenient on the war budget but (laughs) Like one of my favorite shots in it is when they're, they're walking on the glacier and then TARS is kind of walking behind him. And it's, it's like, he's almost like, it's almost like a strut, right? That it's, it's so well done. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've never
1: seen a robot trudge before. Yeah. 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 Um, Oh, I should mention too, like I, back in November, I went to Iceland. Um, and I, one of my goals when I was there is I wanted to see where they shot the interstellar stuff. Um, we couldn't, like after doing research and stuff uh, to people who have kind of made that, that um, journey themselves trying to, to find the lake where they um, shot the, uh, the Miller's Planet stuff, it's very difficult to get to. And they're, they're saying, you know, you can drive up this road for nowhere. Like they had to pave a road for the crew to, to get to this lake because they had like, a 200-foot crane and they had all these, all these vehicles. Uh, we were going to go and try, but, um, we wouldn't want to, you know, burn a day trying to find a lake. Right. But I can totally see why they went there. Like when you, like being in, being to Iceland now, it, it doesn't look like anything else on this planet Mm -hmm. because it's all volcanic. And the, like the, the, you see rocks that are like dried ripples, right. That, and they're like, it goes on forever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sand, like black beach, uh, we, Went to the black beach or we you know we saw lakes that we kept on joking saying it was you know stellar lake because there's these fast vast perfect bodies of water but they're only like a foot and a half deep but you can't tell because it's they're all on black so um and then when they did uh the dr man stuff was all on the glacier and when you like when you see it in the film yeah it's it's that's what iceland looks like they you know they obviously cg'd around it but um like they, the the train of the gla- glacier is a real glacier. Like they actually built Doctor Mann's capsule into the glacier, Then every day because the the capsule would would uh, touch the glacier it would melt it. So they would come back in the morning, and then they have to build out further because they were melting the glacier. Huh. So um, and then they they I think they only had one chance to blow it up too. <laughs> so right. but if you see background footage of them shooting in Iceland. Like they're sitting there, and the wind's just whipping like they had to cancel so many dates because the wind, and like the wind gets absolutely wicked out there.
0: well I guess it makes sense if you're trying to show a yep. a desolate place that humanity can never survive on. you mm. go to a desolate place that humanity yep. can't survive in yep. that we've you know avoided well, populating it's, for it's, that very it's, reason
1: it's It's crazy because it's such a weird foreign uh environment, but it's it's the, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. I've been a lot of places around the world and Iceland is f- by far the most beautiful place I've ever been to. Um, and Dr. Mann actually says that in the film. He's like, you can tell he's been frustrated about being there. Cause they, she says, you know, tell me about your world. And he's like, our world is cold, stark, but undeniably beautiful. Yeah. Right? He's trying to deny he's it. He's trying. But- and then, and then he just like, you know, the days are 67 hours cold. The nights are 67 far colder hours. Like you can tell, had enough of being on this this ice cube.
0: Well, this has been a lot of fun. I really <laughs> appreciate you doing this no, and no uh, kind of celebrating everything that this movie is. I do want to ask: Is there anything that you'd like people to know about? Uh, yeah,
1: I uh, I do have a website that I keep uh, up to date with the latest projects I, I've done. I've got a couple of music videos I've shot that are coming out um, being released soon. Um, but I'm also uh, serving as, as assistant director and a cinematographer for a film called Glass that you may have heard Jason Gray talk about on this podcast. Um, so Jason and I have kind of gone down the rabbit hole over the past few months. You know, uh, how I'm assisting him bring his vision to life. And we've, we have a lot of conversations about movie making and movies like Interstellar. And like we've actually like built a physical set with real things on them um, for our actors to, to, be, uh, to interact with. But we've kind of embraced it on a different way where we actually created all our stuff in the computer first. So we digitally designed our set and then physically built it. So it's been, uh, and that's, I don't know when that's going to come out. We're still shooting. So Mm -hmm. I know it'll be out in 2016. I just don't know when.
0: Yeah. Well, from hearing Jason and you both talk about it and from kind of following
1: the production, I'm pretty excited to see. Oh, I I can't wait for it to come out. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I think it's going to be something special. It's going to be something that, that, uh, I think people are gonna be blown away that it's coming away coming out of London, Ontario. So we've we've really tried to push the boundaries as far as what we're capable of doing as an independent film still
0: oh it's really exciting i can't wait to see it i'm really looking forward to that uh, well thank you again so much for doing this and going down this you know we keep saying the phrase going down this rabbit hole yeah. it's uh something jason and you both both see quite often but uh, yeah i'm really grateful for the experience to oh, watch sure. the movie again and to to have this kind of conversation so thank you again
1: oh, i really no appreciate problem. it anytime
0: That's everything for this week from the Netflix Podcast. If you like what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, reviews, as well as a weekly look at what's new on Canadian Netflix. You can also find us on our social media pages. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, and I'm there at Dylan Clark Moore. And we're on both Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards like shoutouts on the podcast or customized content, or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Speaking of music, the piece you're hearing right now is a Another track off the album Forest City Series Volume 2. This one's called Mm hmm Times 2, at least I hope I'm pronouncing that right, by artist Zachary Gray. I'll be sure to include proper credit and links in today's episode's show notes. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, baby, you ain't streamed nothing yet.